Welcome to the You Love and You Learn podcast, the place to learn about all things love, relationships, relationship anxiety, and to deconstruct the one-size-fits-all narrative of what it means to be in a happy relationship. I'm your host, Sarah Yudkin, a relationship anxiety coach who's on a mission to discuss the nuances of love and relationships that I wish someone would have shared with me years ago. My goal with each episode is for you to leave with an expanded definition of love and relationships and with practices to carry with you in your life and relationships on a day-to-day basis. I'm so grateful to have you here. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. As always, I'm so excited to be here with you today and really looking forward for you to hear this conversation that I had with Amanda Armstrong, who is a neuroscience and trauma-informed anxiety and depression coach. She's also the founder of Rise As We, which is a mental health coaching space. And her experience and education has led her to create a approach to healing through personalized lens of neuroscience and lifestyle design. And I love, love, loved getting to sit down with Amanda because we talked about a subject that I had not necessarily heard someone exploring with so much depth before. I listened to her podcast and she had two episodes in particular that inspired this conversation. And that is talking about understanding not only our default survival response, but understanding our partner's default survival response, defining what that even is and understanding how these two things are and our partner's default survival responses play a huge role in the dynamics of our relationship. So I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, Amanda, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited. And we just found out we literally live like five minutes away. So (laughs) that is incredible. And I love the work that you're doing. And I listened to a couple of podcast episodes of yours that I was like, wow, this information is so important. And I feel like the way that you were explaining it is really going to resonate with the listeners of this podcast. So I'm excited to have you dive into that. And before we do, I'd love to kind of hear what connected you with your work as a neuroscience and trauma-informed coach? Like how did that become something that you felt was meaningful to you and that you wanted to share with others? I think like most people who get into this work, it is so deeply rooted in personal experience. So I struggled with anxiety that eventually manifested as depression. Um, and the mainstream mental health options fell really short in the healing that I wanted. And I was hearing, I went to the doctor and was like, why, why is this happening? Wanting to better understand. And my story, like so many others was I left, you know, about 15 minutes later with a prescription and not really any understanding as to why, um, I went to therapy and, you know, traditional talk therapy. It felt nice to have somebody to talk to, but I didn't feel like I was getting any of the action-based guidance that was actually making me feel any better. It was like, I would go and I would talk in session. I would feel a little better in session, but then I would walk away and be like, okay, but like now what? Nothing in my life changed. Nothing in my life really felt better. And I just kept piecing together. And it wasn't until I really came across the nervous system and started to understand my experience through the lens of the nervous system at the root of anxiety and depression. And that 
oh, actually what I'm experiencing is anxiety, this panic attack. Like it isn't something wrong or broken about me. My psychiatrist is maybe wrong that I'm just going to have to manage symptoms of this for the rest of my life that maybe it makes sense. And so I started to put these pieces together. I have a master's degree in kines exercise psychology. So my research was on this overlap between support, social support, depression, and movement. And so everything just kind of snowballed beyond that. And I, in that came to see that, of course I have anxiety. I'm undersleeping. I'm likely under eating. I'm over-exercising. I have so many things on my calendar. It's unbelievable. And just realizing that this of course my system is activated. Of course I'm struggling. And it just felt like such a more compassionate approach to, and also more empowering than like you came this way and you're just going to have to manage this for the rest of your life. And so when I began to understand that I went on my own healing journey and essentially what I do now is I just bring the tools, the resources, the support that I wish I would have had in my own healing journey into the world. And so it's, my background is definitely, you know, got its education, got its certifications, all of it. But the why behind what I, why I do what I do is because I needed, I needed me 10, 15 years ago. Mm, yeah. So beautiful. And I love the compassionate lens that you bring to the work that you do. And I know that you'll also bring that to this conversation. It's something that's really important for me as well. And that, of course, it makes sense type approach because that's not often what people hear. So before we move forward in this conversation, which is going to be focused on default survival responses, both internally within us and within our partner as well, before you even get into defining what a default survival response is, can you just do a very, very high level overview of what you mean when you say the nervous system? Because I think it's a new buzzword that gets talked about a lot. And I think some people, including myself, when I first kind of heard about it, don't really understand what its job is or why it matters to even pay attention to it. Yeah. So our nervous system, when you, when we talk about mind body connection, I often talk about the mind as being the brain and the body being the nervous system. And what we've learned in the last decade of psychology and neuroscience research is that 80% of this mind body conversation actually originates in the body. And so based on something called the polyvagal theory, it is in my opinion, one of the more accurate, um, or more functional maps for understanding different nervous system states and how we switch. We have these three primary states states of regulation, activation, and immobilization. And so when you're in this regulated state, that is when a part of your nervous system called your parasympathetic nervous system, actually I'll back up. So when I say nervous system, what I'm talking about is something called your autonomic nervous system. So this is the part of your nervous system that is all housed here in your brainstem and it takes care of all your automatic functions. And it's number one job is to keep you alive. That's it. It doesn't care if you live a good life. It doesn't care if you reach your goals, it's primed to keep you alive. And it has these two states of kind of stress and de-stress your parasympathetic. That's when we're in that rest and digest that social engage. That's where we can be intimate. And then it has a sympathetic activated state. And that is what gets activated when we're anxious, when we're fearful, also when we're excited too. And so I think a lot of times we villainize the activation in our system. We want that. We don't want to be calm all the time. We want to be able to be excited about things. We want those butterflies, but it's a balance. And so 
with our nervous system, it's, we kind of have the seesaw of stress and de-stress, parasympathetic and sympathetic. And so understanding anxiety and depression through a nervous system lens means that our default, our hardwiring is to be in this parasympathetic regulated state most of the time to visit states of activation, even shut down, but then to pretty quickly reset back into a place of regulation. But because of the fast paced world that we live in, because of trauma that we've experienced, we get stuck in these states of activation, 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 anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. And what causes us to go into what we commonly call depression. I often refer to this just as a shutdown state. Cause I think depression is a really stigmatized word is when the load on your nervous system. So the load being stressors, if the stressors in your life, if the trauma that you've experienced gets too big or lasts too long, your system shuts down. And so this is why a lot of people experience prolonged anxiety that turns into more of a depression state or why people have a couple of days of really high anxiety. And then what feels like depression, they're like, I'm lethargic. I'm exhausted. I can't get out of bed. And then they reset to what their baseline likely is, which is activation. And so all of us can get stuck with any of these states as our default state, if it becomes the most familiar to our nervous system. And so our nervous system will always choose known and predictable dysregulation over unknown well-being. And so when I talk about anxiety and depression through this nervous system lens, it, it means just understanding that your system is mobilized. It's activated when you're feeling anxious, there's very real things that change in your physiology, the, your eyes change, your blood pressure changes, your heart and your respiration changes. And then it changes in a different way when you get into that shutdown state, that collapsed state. And so looking at these again, not as a, I was born this way. There's something that's always going to be wrong with me, but what if, what if what you're experiencing right now actually makes sense based on your past lived experience and your current life circumstances, how might we approach healing a little bit differently? And the most hopeful thing I think about all of this is that our brain and our nervous system are plastic which means they are shaped up to this point based on our past experience. And they will continue to be shaped or reshaped by our ongoing experiences, which is so, so hopeful because it means it's never too late to unlearn unhelpful patterns. It's what we're going to talk about today, identifying your default response, your survival response. It's never too late to bring awareness to that, to gain strategy around it, to try to ultimately, the goal here is to decrease the threat load, decrease the stress load on your nervous system and increase your familiarity with a felt sense of safety. Hmm. So much good stuff in there. I really loved hearing the way that you explained that. I know it's going to be so helpful for so many people. And what I love about it is that sense of hope that you kind of ended with, which is like, it's never too late. You're not stuck here. And there's always something that we can do to take care of that mind-body connection as you beautifully explained. So that does segue into the notion of the default survival response. So again, I think your definitions of things are just so tangible and helpful for people. So when you say default survival response, what does that mean for the context of what we're going to talk about? 
Yeah. I think let's start with just what are survival responses. And you've likely heard fight, flight, freeze, fawn, shutdown is a new one that tends to get introduced when we have this conversation. And so this is essentially when your system feels threatened, this is the way that it reacts. This is kind of the energy that gets thrown into your response. And it can, I would say default survival responses, there may be some genetic component to it, but usually it's it's based on experience. So our nervous system's default response, its preferred physiological response to threat is to activate, which means most often our default survival responses are built around that fight flight or fawn because you do need some level of activation for fawn as well. And fawn is just the word that we use for kind of like a people pleasing. Um, and what we see often is people who have had either a history of abuse or a lot of childhood trauma, they tend to default more towards fawn or shutdown as their default response, because when you, again, understanding your nervous system is hardwired for survival. If you had a lot of adverse experiences early on in life, especially if they were around your caretakers, you were tiny and you depended on, on the caretakers. Sometimes those are, are the perpetrators of awful things, but even just a lot of emotional unpredictability. If you had a parent that just had no idea how to regulate their own emotions, we think a lot of times when I use the word trauma, I think it's important to give some context around that because when we think about trauma, we think about trauma as, as this big event, right? Things like natural disasters or car accidents or abuse situations, but trauma is anything that overwhelms the nervous system. And that's why we can't compare and what might be for an ER nurse, their average Tuesday might be the most traumatizing day of my life, right? Because our systems have context for different things, different experiences, different capacities. And so I think trauma is sometimes overused, but I also think that it's often underused in acknowledging that our body holds this record of everything that we've ever experienced and anything that felt overwhelming, anytime we didn't get to reset from the onset of stress in our body, that gets stored in our body as, and actually, I think when we talk about the nervous system, I want to offer just a little bit more of like an analogy understanding. Think about your nervous system for a minute, like a computer. It has a file for every single lived experience you've had from even before you were born. Your nervous system started to develop in the womb. So how stressful was your mom when she was pregnant with you? What was your birth like? And then every minute of your life after that, both the good and the hard and the bad. But because it has a bias towards things that are dangerous because it wants to avoid them in the future, this computer, all of these files, they have a little red flag on any time that you didn't feel safe. You didn't get your needs met. You were embarrassed. And... Now, today, your nervous system, using something called neuroception, operates more like a lighthouse. So imagine that beam on the lighthouse. It's constantly scanning the world around you, and it's checking back with all those files. And it's like, does this feel familiar? Does this feel familiar? Is this safe? Is this safe? Is this safe? And anytime something in your environment or in your relationships with other people feels similar 
to a time in your past when you didn't feel safe. Ping, you're activated. Your nervous system is like, hey, pay attention. And when you have either a lack of awareness of, hey, pay attention, you have the lack of ability to hit pause on that. We're always going to respond as if we're there, not here. As if the person that's in front of us is them, not the person that's in front of us. And so when we talk about survival responses, it is how we show up in the world when we've been activated, when we've been triggered, when we've become what we sometimes call dysregulated. And that can look like fight. Do you get more combative, right? When we are here to fight a stressor, we go towards it. Do you flee? Do you avoid? Do you go away? Do you fawn, which is kind of somewhere between activation and shutdown. It's you've got to be activated enough to engage, but you're fawning. You're kind of shutting down your needs to appease another person. And then there's shutdown. That's full dissociation, disconnection. You just kind of like disconnect from the situation and from sometimes your own mind and your own body, likely because that's what you needed to do in the past. And so why, especially people who had a lot of adverse experiences as a young child. And I'll also add the context that trauma can be something that happened too soon, too fast, too big, too much. It also can be when you got too little of the things that you needed to feel safe, too little security, too little predictability, too little space to be yourself without judgment, too little physical connection and love. Tiny humans need co-regulation. They need that tangibility and so why individuals who have those experiences tend to be more fawn or shut down is because you don't have the option to fight or to flee from your caretakers. It's not an option for your system, but also it's not an option for survival because you need them. And what we also sometimes see with, with those patterns is, oh, I had a good thought. I've lost that train of thought. We'll come back to that. If I can, I can remember what else I wanted to say with that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, all of that though is so helpful, especially the piece about like, when you are a child, it's more important to have the safety in the form of approval and love and validation from your caretakers than it is to do something that might take that away. And so, of course, let's say if your parents were like, oh, why are you upset? You should be happy. You know, like you're going to take that on as, oh, I need to be happy all the time to make sure my parents still love me and accept me. And then that's a recent story of my clients. Then you start wondering why it's so hard for you to sit with an uncomfortable feeling when you're older, because someone who is very important to you in your life made it seem like that wasn't okay for you to actually have those uncomfortable feelings. And so then you kind of shut those down or you avoid and try to get back to what was approved of by other people important to you. So I think that piece is especially important and it can bring that compassion back to it, not in a blaming or a judging way towards any of our caretakers or anything like that, but more so just to give that self-awareness and give you that extra level of, oh yeah, this does make sense. Yeah. And that actually reminded me of the thought I wanted to finish with a minute ago, which was, we also see patterns of self-blame often mm. because when you are a child, 
it is so much more adaptable. So let's say you were a kid, like many of us were, whose parents said, go to your room until you can calm yourself down and and come back out. That was my experience. A lot of the time, even with really incredible, well-meaning parents, they did what they knew, right? Which was send the kid away, let him get calm, come back out when you're behaving appropriately, right? Not Mm -hmm. developmentally appropriately, but appropriately based on their standard. And when a child gets sent away or when a caretaker is angry, it's actually adaptive for the child to to, to take on the blame. It's adaptive for them to think that they are wrong versus my caretaker, my, my safety and the world is bad. Right. So it's like, I must be bad because actually it is incomprehensible for me to think that I am good in an unsafe world. I would rather I am bad in a safe world because then maybe I can control me And that is a pattern that's adaptive in childhood to some extent, right? To stay in connection with caretakers to get our needs met, but it becomes extremely detrimental in adulthood. And just what you said, I think it's so important that we have this context so that we can be aware of our patterns through this lens of compassion. If you're somebody who's really hard on yourself, especially in relationship and you're somebody who's going to fawn and you're going to take the blame, like no matter what's gone wrong between you and your partner or you and a friend, like you're the one who's going to be like, oh, but like, it must be me. It must be me. If you have that urge in your body that like, it must be me, there was likely a lot, or at least a couple significant experiences that you've had where the other party, probably the older should have been more mature party, didn't take responsibility for their end of a circumstance stance made you feel like you were in the wrong exclusively. And the only way to repair that, what you needed at the time survival relationship was to just say, yeah, I'm bad. I'm wrong. I must adapt to, to stay in connection and to survive. And that's why I think so much compassion comes when we can understand our nervous system. And it's just desire to survive all of the survival responses we're going to talk about are all adaptive. They served you at one point, the disconnect becomes now your old patterns don't meet the reality of your present day situations. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'll just share vulnerably, like from my experience, as far as the influences that I received and again, zero, it's all well meaning, but I think I learned the freeze shut down, um, kind of like somewhere between those two, depending on the context Um, learned a little bit of that from my mom and that side of the family a bit. And then not in every context, but in some contexts, a little bit more of like the fight response or kind of like, you know, getting frustrated about something kind of right off the jump from my dad or shut down again, depending on the context. Mm -hmm. I also had very great things I had taken away from them too, but I do think those patterns I can definitely see. And as I've gotten older, working on better understanding and being more capable of navigating those relationships, specifically with them and the ways that I would normally tend to respond. Um, So that would be those two, I would say, are kind of the most common survival patterns that I find myself in. And what would you say makes it a default one? Is that just the most common one we find ourselves using or 
Yeah. So when I work with clients to help them identify their default survival response, again, it's with the goal of just awareness. If you can kind of catch yourself in that old pattern sooner, you can course correct. Now course correct doesn't always mean you want to do anything differently. You might consciously decide, nope, this is the right way that I want to show up in this situation. But when you can have awareness around your default survival response, you can see yourself moving into that pattern. And if you have tools to regulate yourself, we call that self-regulation. If you have tools to kind of just take a beat, right? Insert a pause of any kind, you get that moment to reflect. Is this because of what's happening right now? Like, is this an appropriate and proportionate response to this specific situation? Or does this feel charged is a word I often use. Does this feel like maybe a disproportionate reaction to what was just said to me? And I know that that's charged with my past. And so when we talk about default survival responses, so mine is fight for sure. And I think a lot of that comes from, I have a pretty secure attachment to both of my parents. And so, because for women in general, this is a very kind of overarching theme we often see is, is freeze or fun. Um, because of patterns oftentimes that we witness in our own moms or in our own female figures in our life. Um, and adaptively, right. As a species, females tend to be the smaller animal. Mm -hmm. And so fight isn't always an option. Flight isn't always an option. So biologically, those are an evolutionarily, those tend to be a little bit more default. I had a mom who's was definitely a default as fight. So I think I got that from her. And because my dad was not an aggressive figure, I don't think I ever needed to really, or didn't often need to kind of fun or freeze or shut down to that. And so also when it comes to default survival responses, you don't choose them. You didn't choose them and you don't choose them today. And so the way that you show up in a particular moment is very hardwired into you, especially when it's a really reactive moment. Now that doesn't absolve you of responsibility of your behavior, right? If you yell at your child, if you yell at your partner and that doesn't feel authentic to you, that doesn't cultivate what you want in that relationship, you are responsible for that. And so when we talk about kind of, you don't choose, it's still not an excuse for the result of that, because even though you don't, you didn't choose your story that created this pattern for you, your healing is your responsibility. And, and I say that in the most loving holding way as somebody who's been on a long healing journey myself. And, um, but when it comes to two default survival responses, that's what we're talking about is which one do you go to most? And you might have a different default survival response depending on the circumstance or situation. So when I've done this work with clients, they often realize that they have a different default response with their partner than they do with their boss at work, than they do with their children. And so, because we have different storylines with people who are our employees or employers, people who are our, you know, lover partners, and then people who are our children, people that we caretake over. And so sometimes you may have a more universal 
survival response, but other times you may notice a very distinctly different default survival response based on uh, the, the role that you play in a situation or in relation to another person. So much good stuff in there. And I loved that piece about responsibility, which is like, just because you did something that yes, was part of your default survival response, which no, is not in your control with how that came about in your life. That doesn't mean that it's not your job to take that ownership for after it happened. And I know a lot of people in my community and myself included feel such shame or such guilt when they do something, maybe let's say to hurt their partner or to pull away when they really wanted to actually be vulnerable with them. And so then it feels hard to apologize for that because then that's another example, like you said earlier of that self-blame, like, well, I just keep messing up. And so if I apologize, then that means that I get another ding against me. Um, of course, we're talking about so, so, uh, safe, healthy relationships here, not one where someone is like making you out to be a problem, but it's almost this self-perpetuated story that they've done something wrong. And so I think that's a really important piece you mentioned where like, it's okay to mess up. You're not going to be perfect, but can you take ownership of it? And then can you keep trying to learn these new patterns? And especially when it comes to relationship anxiety, there was an example in one of your podcasts you gave that perfectly illustrates what a lot of people in my community experience and directly to quote you, you said, sometimes we or our partners pull away from the love and connection that we want most because it feels unfamiliar or uncomfortable to us. And so that default response that we have in that moment is to pull away or to lash out or to do something that puts a wall up between ourselves and the person that we really do want that love and connection with. But it's because love hasn't always felt safe, maybe because we didn't have a strong relationship with one of our caretakers, or maybe because in a past relationship, someone screwed us over, um, whatever it is that has happened up into our life until now, maybe it hasn't felt fully safe to be vulnerable and to move toward that love and connection. And so whether it's us or our partner, one of us may have that default survival response that kind of closes off or tries to push away that love and connection. So can you talk a little bit more about what you've seen in either your own experience or when working with clients about how you see that pattern play out? Yeah, I'll share from my own experience. My default survival response, like I mentioned, is, is fight is like, let's, let's go to bat till we figure it out. Right. Last, last man or woman standing. And my husband's default survival response is flight, avoid conflict at all costs. And both of those patterns, we can see very clear, clearly from our upbringing, like where and why those are what they are. And so often to also, I think we've talked a lot about, you know, adverse childhood experiences. And from my own experience, I had two pretty secure, pretty caretaking parents. They're still married. They still love each other, like imperfect. Absolutely. But my mom got really sick when I was 14, she had a brain tumor and it was cancer. And we didn't know if she was going to make it spoiler alert. She did. She's still with us. And we're so lucky, but I'm the oldest of four. And so I wrote the story at 14, basically my childhood is over. 
I'm in charge now. It's my job to make sure that my brother, my two younger sisters, like get where they need to get, that they're taken care of. Um, I remember distinctly being downstairs and kind of getting emotional. And I went upstairs again, where I'm 14. I think I'm an adult at 14. I'm not, I'm a child. You're very much a child at 14. And I distinctly remember going upstairs to the bathroom, collapsing onto the floor, sobbing, standing up, splashing cold water on my face, cleaning off my mascara, putting new mascara on and went down and like made dinner or whatever came next. I don't remember what came next. Mm, And so for me, that pattern became you're the needed one. You can't need. You hold the space for everybody else's feelings. Your feelings are are yours. And so early on in my marriage, I also came in with kind of these expectations of, you know, this is what, and all of us do. We all have scripts for our partners in some way, right? This is what makes a good relationship. This is what makes a good, good partner. This is what makes me a good partner. And my husband came into this with like good relationships. They don't fight he never saw his parents argue at all. And I came in with like, no, like you argue because you care and you argue well and respectfully, but like there is conflict. And so I would come in to the hard conversations. I would lean into the conflict and I would do so in my way, not realizing how adverse to that and inexperienced in that he was. And so we would have conflict and we'd we'd get to a hard part of a conversation where usually, so because I'm like so, so activated, I go, 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 go until the point where like my system shuts me down because that, that fights is really metabolically taxing. You can't be there forever. And so I would go, go, go till I would usually be the one that's just like, forget it. And I would storm out because I felt the urge. I needed the break, but I didn't know how to ask for the break respectfully or in a helpful way, like I do now in my, my, my conflict with my partner, but he would take that as like a, Oh, thank heavens. Right. What a sigh of relief. The person who's metaphorically throwing punches at me has left the room. So he would go down into the basement. He would disconnect. He would turn on some TV. And then I'm writing this story of, well, he doesn't care about me. Like when his nervous system and my nervous system were just so overloaded and we just have these different responses. And I'm sitting here desperate for a hug. I I need help to come down from this. I need this connection, but like, I'm not about to ask for it because then he wins. Right. And he's sitting here spinning the story of like, I'm never going to be good enough for her. Like I'm just, I'm trying and it's not enough. And like, can't keep up in an argument. I'll argue him 10 out of 10. You know, he's like, I, I, I don't know what to do. So he just shuts down. And that's, again, both of these are our ways of self-protecting, but both of us want nothing more than to be able to be what the other person wants and to be able to felt loved by the other person. And so what was really helpful for us, and this happened over time and through a lot of support and a very expensive couples coach, that we got to the place where we, we had the tools to first understand our own default survival responses. You're right. I do do this. And the other person saying, oh, you're right. I do do this. And I can see how, when I do this, it makes you feel this. And the other person, oh, I can see how, when I do this, it makes you feel this. Cause what would often happen, my husband's got a very linear brain. I'm very emotional. 
So I would come and I would, you know, I'm feeling this way. Like I'm feeling really hurt that you just like came down here and wherever. And he would go into the explanation as to why, as opposed to the validating of feelings first. And so there was that disconnect of like, I don't, I don't need to know why, like you don't know it. And I don't know it, but like, I just need a hug (laughs) because I did not, it felt like a life threat to my system to be, um, I don't even want to say the weaker one to be gentle, being gentle meant death to teenage me. And so softening in my relationship has not come naturally to me at all. And yet it's so desperately what my system wanted, but in order to soften, I needed to feel safe. And it wasn't that my partner wasn't a safe person. My husband is incredible. He is amazing. And he cares about nothing more in the world than like having a happy wife and a happy life. And he felt so defeated because he just didn't know what that looked like or how to do that. He didn't have the skills of compassionate communication, or he didn't understand the need to validate before, like to connect before we correct, you know, one way or the other. And so it took time for us to see that our patterns were different and for us to be able to kind of come to the table and say, okay, how can I recognize when I'm, I'm getting escalated and how can you recognize when you're retreating maybe a little bit sooner? And can we come into conversation around like, what does it mean to take a healthy pause from conflict if we don't feel like we can self-regulate? And also because I am talking about a healthy relationship with two partners who want to be in partnership with each other, who want to learn each other's wants and needs. I've had to get clear on, well, when you see me doing this, if you have the capacity to, this is what would be helpful to to co-regulate me. This is what I really need when I start to escalate. And, and he's been able to, to do the same. And we're very much in this. We've only been married. We've been married less than five years. We're still figuring this out. Um, but it is, we're in a completely different league than we were even two short years ago, because we were able to get clear on this of how we both have these different default responses and how our system goes there, not because we choose it, but because that's where it's been trained that it's the safest mine, it's the safest when you fight his, it's the safe, your safest when you retreat. And what is it that both of us need? He needs a lot of verbal reassurance and and physical touch. And I, in those moments need that verbal, he's, he's physical touch first, then verbal reassurance. (laughs) And I am verbal reassurance. And if you don't give me that, don't think about touching me. But once I feel safe, I, I need a hug. If you can tell me I'm here with you, we're obviously not seeing eye to eye right now, but I'm on your team. Like the minute those words come out of his mouth, like I'm on your team, my whole system, because I have hyper-independence. I think if I, if it's going to get done, I have to do it because there's nobody else around to do it. And so him understanding that pattern of mine has enabled him and to be a much better partner to me and me understanding his default responses and his patterns help me to be a much better partner to him. But that work starts by saying mine, what's mine 
And hey, partner, if you want to do this too, here's this podcast that kind of talks about it. But both partners have to take ownership of kind of this awareness and this willingness. But even if you're the only partner who is in a place to do the self-work, because oftentimes our partner's time to do their work and our time to do our work are, are don't line up. And that's so frustrating. Even you having an awareness of yours and you being able to catch yourself spiraling out into to patterns can change the relationship immensely. Being able to have self-regulation. And that's the work I do a lot with clients. It's like, okay, when you do notice that you're being reactive, now what? What can you do to source for a sense of groundedness, self-safety, get your authentic self back online, not your young wounded self, that inner child, so that you can show up in that relationship more grounded and calm and in alignment with you. And that doesn't mean that, that you don't need to have a hard conversation, but you can have a hard conversation in a way that at least you can walk away from feeling like you showed up more in alignment with the partner that you want to be. And our partner's nervous system responds to that. If you can stay grounded, they don't feel like their defenses need to be as high. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you firstly for just sharing so openly about the dynamic and what you've worked through and how your default responses show up in your relationship. I know that's going to be really helpful for people to hear and the message of it's a practice. It takes self-awareness first. And then it also takes a partner having that awareness and working on it, maybe not at the same time, but I really felt just like the energy and intentionality that you've put into this. And the reminder too, that's important is like, there's going to be times where it's not going to be perfect and you're five years in, but you're way farther ahead than you were two years ago. Like just the reminder that it's going to take some time. And a few key pieces of that stood out to me. One was that when we can understand how our partner shows up and responds and how we show up and respond and how those affect each other, we can bring a more, I guess, compassionate, I keep using that word, but like a compassionate and more positive understanding, I guess, of how that shows up. I think in your episode where you talked about this, that inspired me to reach out. You said it can help us assume positive intent in our partner when we know that maybe something that has come up has triggered or activated them. And it's not necessarily personal. It's just their default response. So that really stood out to me. Another thing that stood out to me is the meanings that we can create when we're activated so the example you gave of well he's just down there watching tv he doesn't care at all like he doesn't want to make you know any sort of amends at all right now and his story to to you could have been like oh like we're all good now but I still need her to come back and kind of reassure me that I'm not missing the mark and that I'm not like this horrible husband showing up for her so I think like the meaning we create from things can be so important and I know my meaning that I used to create a lot was in the midst of conflict, if I felt so uncomfortable in my relationship, the automatic default response was, well, maybe this is not the right person for me because he's not showing up in this exact way that I need him to. And my parents got a divorce. So like, oh, well, maybe I'm just 
heading in that direction too. And all signs point to this is too hard and too confusing. And so the meaning that we create in that activated state is going to always be so much more fear-based and scary than, like you said, when that authentic self comes back online and you get back to that present moment where you can bring yourself safety and you're not in immediate danger. So those, I guess, were two of the things I think that really stood out to me and how that can really strengthen our relationship with our partner to, to understand these pieces. Yeah. And the terminology that I often use to describe what you just described is like your state determines your story. And so if you are in a really activated state, you're going to interpret somebody's behavior differently than if you're in a more regulated state. And the quick example I always use is let's say you have a friend who usually texts you back and you're having a pretty anxious day and you text them and they don't respond. Two hours goes by, three hours goes by. You're going to start to write this story of, well, they must be mad at me or something must be wrong with them, right? Because you're really activated right now. So it's like, this is a, this is a danger to some sense of security belonging, which is a safety need for humans. So I must be the problem. I must be the danger or they must be in danger versus let's say same situation. Friend doesn't text you back, but you're feeling pretty low, pretty shut down. You're pretty burnt out, pretty exhausted. The story might say, why do I even bother? Nobody cares about me. They don't care about me. Versus if you're having a regulated day, you've got enough sleep last night, you ate yourself breakfast, like, and you're like, ah, whatever. They're probably busy. I need an answer to this question. I'll just call them in a couple hours if I don't hear from them. That person's behavior didn't change. And we've all had days where we've told each of those stories. And So understanding that your nervous system state determines how you are filtering for tonality, facial expressions, intent from your partner means that, okay, were they being snippy or did I just hear snippy because I'm feeling kind of agitated? Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to being in partnership with other people, especially when they're safe partnerships and you both want this and, you know, and and my husband and I will both be the first to admit about year one in our marriage, we were like, we have made a grave error, but I was four months pregnant. (laughs) And I don't think divorce was ever really like at the table for either of us, but it was just, what does this look like? Do we just grin and bear it for the rest of our lives? What we've made a grave error. (laughs) And here we are a few, just a short few years later. And like, I could not have picked a better life partner. Mm. And we've been through devastating loss. I had four miscarriages in between my first and second son. We did IVF. We've been through a lot together in a short amount of time. And it wasn't even cherries and roses. A lot of this came up because I was so depleted and he didn't understand. How could he understand what toll that takes on on me, my body, my psyche. Right. And it was when I did a lot of my work and I brought a different energy into the relationship that all of a sudden he was like, okay, tell me how I can do different. What does this look like? I couldn't even tell you, but there's an Instagram account. It's a gentleman. He's not a coach. He's not a therapist. He's basically a guy who's like, I learned because I was the worst husband in the world. (laughs) And for whatever reason, he speaks in a language my husband understands. And I was like, Hey, do you, are you in a place where I can send this to you and you won't get offended? This is sometimes how I feel. And I had sent him things like that before, but 
this time he approached me, which I'm usually the one to bring the hard conversations to him. And he said, Hey, what I understood from you sending me that is that you're feeling kind of this way. And I don't, I don't know what that looks like for me to do differently, but I can see how you'd gotten there. That was a different, that was a different human. That was a different human Mm -hmm. than the man who lived with me a couple years ago. And I think he was only able, not that it was all my job, but I can see that he was only able to get there because I did it enough work to be able to meet my own emotional regulation needs. I was less dependent on him to emotionally regulate me. I didn't need so much of his validation for me to be able to be like, no, I'm mad and I can be mad. It's okay. I don't need somebody's permission to be mad or to be sad. And when I could do that, my intensity decreased. Well, when my intensity decreases and my ability to self-regulate increases, there's a safer energy in the relationship. There's a safer energy in the home. Now it's not as dangerous for him to say, oh, let me come and walk my distance. Let me say, maybe I don't have to have it all figured out. And let's be a team because I became the person he wanted to be a teammate with. Nobody wants to be a teammate with somebody who is nitpicky and naggy and throwing the first punch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can have a lot of compassion for that version of me who felt like if I didn't, I was going to have to do it all. And I I live on the brink of overwhelm. So if, if I don't do it all and I can't do it all and he needs to step up and I'm only happy. And if he steps up and, you know, we, we had different values. We had different priorities. Things that were a big deal to me weren't to him. And I made that wrong instead of we're different. And so are there just as many places that I needed my husband to step into his, his healing and, and come in to put effort into our relationship? Yeah. And so did I, but it was my softening first. It was me stepping into that work first that created enough safety in our relationship as a whole for him to step in the same direction with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that it's changed everything. It's changed everything, not just about my relationship, but my whole life, because that relationship is such a grounding piece to, to everything. When I can feel safe in partnership with somebody that changes the way I show up in my work and my friendships and the way that I mother. And, and it really did start with this awareness of my default survival response, why that was, where that was coming from, how it looked in my present day. So I could catch myself heading into that pattern sooner. And then I had to practice, well, what tools help me to pause and self-regulate so that I can decide, do I actually want to go at it about this thing today? Is it actually even about this thing or is it about something else? And so many of the things that I used to bring to the table just didn't need to be brought at the table. So of course I wore my husband down. Oh, interesting. I learned how to have my back compassionately and that changed everything. And that came through this awareness of these default patterns I had. Mm, Yeah. Everything you're saying, I'm just like really taking it in and I'm resonating so much with it. And I love the invitation for those listening to, from a loving place, take that ownership, not for their relationship or for their partner necessarily, although that will be a direct downstream benefit, but for themselves. And 
I remember there were so many times where I was like, well, why should I have to do it? Why can't Nate just take the lead on everything? And it wasn't helping me at all. When I take ownership of my own emotions, my patterns, it doesn't just, again, help him, but it helps me and you get the reward. It's not just about the dynamic of the relationship. And so if nothing else, why not give it a try? And if there's no support or no response at all and no shift in the relationship dynamic after you feel like you've really given yourself that gift of learning how to regulate, learning how to be present, learning how to show up for yourself, then you can revisit something. But I think so many people feel frustrated that their partner isn't taking the lead over their healing or their life or their growth in the relationship. And I talk a lot about how I just think that we have it so backwards and it's all unintentional. And it's not that we're trying to get someone to do it because, oh yeah, we just are, it's not like we're lazy. It's just that we've been taught the message. I think that other people are going to come rescue us and your prince or princess in shining armor are going to be there. And then that's when the work stops when it's actually like, no, that's a really great opportunity to start getting really connected to yourself and then your partner too. Yeah. Mm, Beautiful. Well, before I ask you my final question, is there any insight that you have around like basics as far as helpful or more healthy ways to react to our survival responses or anything related to kind of coping? I know that could be a whole other podcast. So again, we don't have to go down too large of a path with it. But if someone's newer to this, they don't feel like they know how to regulate or self-regulate as you beautifully shared. What does that look like? How can they start exploring that? I think it really starts with a, like a contextual understanding, which we've done a great job covering. The next step is a personal awareness of. And so that's something I'll put a little shameless plug in. We didn't get to get into like how to identify your survival responses. And I do that really well in the podcast episodes you've been re- referring to. And so if you could link those in the show notes for your listeners, because I think that's the next step is, well, how do I know what my default? And some of your listeners are like, I know I'm her fight, or I know I'm fun or freeze. Like I just, I freeze up. And that helps them understand a little bit more of the, okay, that is mine. And then comes the, what, what do I do with it? Okay. I catch myself in this pattern. What do I do with it? And I wish I could say like, here's the tool to help you pause, but it's so particular to the individuals, but it could be as simple as, oh, I'm going there. And if you're more of an in your head type person, I find a lot of our clients, we want them to be in their body. Cause that's where you can actually catch the activation happening first. But for now, a lot of our clients start in their head. And so you just narrate it. Ooh, this is my default survival response showing up or, Oh, this is fight. Oh, this is fun. I can see what's happening. And this is the most frustrating place to be in is this place of awareness before you have the tools to do anything about it. And so if you're listening to this and this is resonating with you and you identify and the next couple months, you have nothing, but I'm doing it again, or they're doing it again. Know that that's actually, that's okay. That's part of the process. And it's pesky and it's frustrating and it straight up sucks to be able to say, oh man, I'm in it, but I don't know how to get myself out of it. Or after the fact, I spent so long there, I'd be after the fact and I'd feel so justified in the moment. And then I'd go get some water. I'd sit outside and I'd be like, oh, 
another trucker. I did it again. I did it again. And so that's, that's just part of it. Friends, that's just part of it. And it's never too late to catch it. If you catch it in the moment, cool. If you catch it an hour later, cool. If you catch it a week later, cool. We're looking for patterns because those patterns and the frequency in which you observe those patterns tells your brain, Hey, this is important to pay attention to. And so when you get to a place where you have a little bit more capacity, you're becoming more familiar with those patterns. It could be as simple as, like I said, narrating it, taking a deep breath, a deep breath, as cliche as that sounds shifts your physiology. When you inhale slowly, filling your belly with air and you exhale out, it resets a little bit of your system towards a parasympathetic state. You don't take deep breaths when you're activated or shut down. It's short, shallow breathing. I don't make the rules. That's what our body does. So if you can get yourself to just notice and take a deep breath, you've given yourself at least 1% more capacity to course correct. My husband and I now have language where it's like, I'm escalating. I need a minute. And I'm usually the one that needs to, <laughs> to offer that. And I'll, I'll, I'll step out or I'll go grab water. I'll change my environment for a second. We oftentimes now we know if we need to have a hard conversation, doing it outside, doing it. Oh, please. Before 10 PM at night, I can't tell you how many times things went South in a way that they didn't need to, because we were both exhausted. Yep. And I am the one who feels the urgency. I need to address this thing. I need to address it now. He's like, I don't think we ever need to address it. (laughs) There's somewhere in the middle. And so for me, it's oftentimes, hey, this is a conversation I'd like to have with you. When's a good time for you to have it? So that I think it's as much about proactive planning for things you know might be triggering to one or both of you as much as it is like reactive self-regulation. And so those are a couple strategies that I would offer is, um, if you're more like me, you will not die if you don't talk about it right now at 10 30 PM, but it is okay to say, Hey, this is a conversation I'd like to have. Or in the morning, Hey, this is a conversation I'd like to have when this weekend works for you or when today works for you. Mm -hmm. And when you notice you're falling into that pattern, you need a pause and whatever you can do to give you a pause. I don't have hard conversations with my husband without a water bottle, because again, getting into the neuro nerdy physiology, when you swallow it activates something called your vagus nerve that helps to regulate. So I'm looking for these just 1% little ways to reground myself, taking a deep breath, taking a swallow of water, having hard conversations outside saying, Hey, I need to hit pause and just go walk out really quick. And in partnership, oftentimes one partner or another has kind of an abandonment fear. And so if you are the partner who needs to take a break, or if you are the partner who's getting to a place where you're like, we have gone beyond the productive place, what can you do with each other to offer the promise of return? Hey, I am not in a place where I can show up as my best self and use I statements. I, not you, you're out of control. I can't have this conversation with you. I'm feeling myself activating. I'm feeling myself shut down right now. I'm not in a place where I can be the best partner for you right now. I can't continue to have this conversation. Let's return to it tomorrow or let's return to it in an hour. Can we take a minute? And, and I was probably the partner who's like, no, we need to finish it right now. And to the other partner who has maybe a little more capacity in that moment, repetition, that's it. Repetition, repetition. I want to be loving to you. I want to stay in partnership with you. And I can't do that right now. I need to take a minute. I need to reset. 
And the other person based on their history may come back and be like, well, if you loved me, you'd figure like, and that's where you, those are boundaries, right? I love you. And I'm hitting pause so that I can, I can come back and love you the best way I can. And it's that it's okay. It's okay that you leave them in that room feeling frustrated. I mean, this is something I'm playing as a mom right now, right? Mm -hmm. I love you and I'm coming right back, but I need to step out so that I don't, I don't yell. I don't show up as the, the mom or the partner that I don't want to right now. It's my job. Nothing you do makes my actions not my own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't choose yeah. to be triggered, but the way I respond, the way I show up, the minute it comes out of my mouth or the minute it becomes behavior, it's mine to own. And so I think when you can become more aware of your own survival responses and the goal here is I want to show up as close and as often to my authentic self, my loving self towards this person as possible. And in order to do that, I need, I need to take a break and it's okay that that might frustrate them. It's okay that they might not understand that, but there's this promise of return. Yeah. And I think that can soothe and coax them. So I know that was like a lot of all over the place for them, but I hope that there were pieces that resonated with different people listening. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot of great, like tangible language. I know that Um, sometimes simply changing the language you're using in a conversation has the ability to make it go in a much different direction. So I loved the phrases you were saying, like, I'm feeling activated. I need to take some space and really reminding people to take that ownership of their feelings. Those I statements are always so important and it's going to be way less triggering of a defensive reaction versus the, you are doing this to me type thing. So thank you so much. And I feel like this conversation really has been again so wonderful there's a final question i ask all of my guests because this is the you love and you learn podcast what is one thing you have learned about love that you would want to leave listeners with that it takes effort to have a deep love i think that love is is unconditional it's limitless and I've especially learned that as a mom, especially mom of two, you're not sure that you can love the second one as much as you love the first. And then you do, and it's wild, the capacity, but I know the love I have for my husband today is different than the love I had for him before. And that didn't come easy for us. At least it may for you. I love that for you, but love and respect are, they're inseparable. And when we learned how to respect each other and choose to be a team, even in, especially in conflict was when our love was able to deepen because it allowed him to be all of him and me to be all of me. And for neither one of us needing to be wrong for being different than the other person. And that's not something we understood when we got married. And it's something we we misunderstand all the time. We just have better tools to navigate that. But one thing that I have learned is that my love is, is something I want to earn and deepen and work on every day. And that is what's gotten us here. It's not a fairy tale. It's messy, but it's very worth it. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing all that and for being so open with your own story. I, it's helping me to hear that. It's helping. I know it's going to help listeners. So thank you so much, Amanda, for joining me. Is there anywhere that you would like to send people to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, I think the two places, or I guess three, Instagram is my most active platform and my handle's Amanda on the rise. And then like she's referenced, I have my own podcast. It's an anxiety and depression podcast. We talk a lot about the nervous system and that is regulate and rewire. And then my website is just riseaswe.com. Thank you so much. And yeah, thank you for your wisdom and for your time. And thank you everybody for listening to another episode. And I will see you in the next one. Thank you so much for listening to the Love and You Learn podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, it would mean the absolute world to me if you could rate and review the podcast because the more ratings and reviews there are, the more people that can hear this message. And it's really important to me to get this message out to the world and to create a space where people can learn about love and relationships in a way that is not judgmental, in a way that helps them expand their perspective from the cultural narratives that we've heard and seen in the movies and in Hollywood and the media. And the more ratings and reviews that are there, the more people that can hear this message. So thank you again so much. It really means the world to me that you are listening and see you in the next episode.